the book of Titus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, for it declares to us how we are supposed to live, how we are supposed to think, the way that we are supposed to behave. But Lord, sometimes it's difficult to accomplish what you've called us to do. So we need the power of your Holy Spirit to help us do those things. Lord, as we study this morning, would you minister to our hearts? Would you meet us where we're at? Lord, if there's an area in which our life needs to be convicted, may you convict. If there's an area where we need to be exhorted or picked up or encouraged, may you do that. For Lord, you know our hearts better than we know it ourselves. So Lord, just speak to us this morning from your scriptures as we come before you with our Bibles open, our hearts open, to hear what you might have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. In the book of Titus, the Apostle Paul is writing to a young pastor, Titus. They had ministered together on the island of Crete, and when it came time for Paul to leave, he leaves Titus behind and then must get some word or some information. He writes Titus this letter. And in the letter, he instructs Titus to do a couple of things. Number one, he says, set in order the things that are lacking. And number two, he says, I want you to appoint elders or overseers in every city. And by telling Titus to set things in order, it kind of implied that they were out of order. They were straight, they had gone crooked, and now they need to be corrected. Crete was an area with many new believers, and these new believers needed to be taught and discipled. That's what new believers need. They need the discipling and the teaching of God's word. I've run across in my life, sometimes pastors or churches are very good at getting new believers, but they're not very good at discipling. Other times churches are very good at discipling, but they're not real good at getting new believers. I think there needs to be a balance in a church where you're speaking forth the gospel, you're inviting people to come to Christ, but there also needs to be a place where you can grow deeper and be taught, and that only comes through the teaching of God's word. So to do this, the apostle Paul tells Titus, he says, I want you to appoint these elders, overseers, men who can take a look or kind of be over top of the home churches that were meeting in these different cities. I want you to appoint someone, but I don't want you to use the world standards. I don't want you to use their success or how much money they have. I want you to use certain characteristics or qualifications. I want you to look at their lives, see how their families run. What's their integrity like? What are, what's really important to them? Just go a little bit deeper than the world might look. And Titus, I want you to find men, and here's what I want you to look for. I want you to look for men who are blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children who are not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop, a leader must be blameless as a steward of God. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. Easy job description, right? None of these things. But hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught. I want you to find guys, I want you to find men before you appoint them that know how to hold fast to the word of God. Why? So they might be able to, with sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who are standing or living or teaching in contradiction to God's word. And once the leaders are in place, Paul used some very strong language about those false teachers. He said, I want you to, and these are Paul's words, not mine, I want you to shut their mouths. I want you to stop them from talking of those, he calls them idol talkers, he calls them deceivers. And they profess to know God, but in their works, in their lifestyle, they deny him. They're abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. You see, Paul says to Titus, I want you to identify them. I want you to stop them from talking, using the word of God. Teach them the truth, not so that they'll leave, so that their faith will grow, so they will become part of the church. They will become useful in the body of Christ, not just someone that we're trying to run out of the church. Don't misunderstand that. 
So in chapter 1 of Titus, Paul, as he's writing to Titus, focuses on the qualifications for leadership within the church. These are qualifications for a pastor. But in chapter 2, he's going to shift his focus this morning. It's going to be on the characteristics of the people in the church. Last two weeks, we focused on what it takes to lead a church. What, kind of, what are the requirements? To this week, we're going to be focusing on you. Last week, you got to grade me and say, well, how do you live up to those standards? Well, this week, I get to grade you. No, I'm not really going to do that. I want you to take yourself and you look at yourself in comparison to God's word and say, Lord, is there some area in my life that I need to adjust, to change? Is there repentance that needs to happen in some area of my life? As I look at these qualifications of Christians within the church, where do I fit in this case? Pick up with me as I begin in chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to read the first 10 verses, and that will be our text for this morning. Paul says this to Titus, But as for you, speak the things which are proper, for sound doctrine, that the older men may be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women, likewise, they may be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, that means stealing, but showing all good fidelity, it means trustworthiness, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. After instructing Titus to set straight those things which are broken and to appoint elders in every city, Paul says, Titus, but as for you. In other words, here's what I want you to do, Titus. I want you to, and it says it right there, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. I want you to speak. I want you to teach those things that are biblical. Teach those biblical truths. The verb tense here instructs Titus to do this constantly. It's the implication that he begins doing it with no idea that it's going to end. He's going to keep doing this. I want you to do it constantly, Titus. Speak these things in sound doctrine. In your everyday conversation, in your conversations at work, in your conversations at home, wherever you might be, teach sound doctrine. And the phrase sound doctrine carries the implication of right thinking. No, so in other words, I should be able to get a biblical truth. It should be able to take my mind and put my mind to right thinking. And right thinking should lead to my right living. So the idea of what I'm studying, what I'm learning in the scriptures, should play itself out in my life. There should be a connection there. There shouldn't be a disconnect where I learn, I study, but it doesn't change my life. It should be something that is connected. If you teach them right, Titus, with sound doctrine, it will produce right living in them. Essentially, that's what he's saying. Right teaching produces right living. You see, the ungodly teachers, they were living ungodly lifestyles. They lived however they wanted. They taught ungodly truths. And Paul's telling Titus that his teaching should match his lifestyle. The things that he knows in his head, the things that he's teaching others, should be played out in his everyday life. In fact, the New Living Translation takes this verse, and it translates it this way. 
As for you, Titus, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. So you do understand that when you come to church, you hear God's word taught, it's supposed to change the way that you think, which is in turn going to change the way that you live. That should be happening in the life of a believer on a regular basis. Titus was to give regular and careful instructions about practical and Christian living, about the godly attitudes and actions that come from believing and obeying God's word. So let me just explain it this way. As you study God's word, it should change your life. It, it, it literally. Now, it may not happen overnight. You might have a slow process of changing. Others may have a quicker process of changing. I have found in my life, in my history, in knowing people, the slower it goes, the longer it lasts. Perhaps you've run across somebody who's had their life changed. They've met Jesus, and then you meet them six weeks later, and, oh, I tried that. I'm done with that. I, that didn't work for me. Now, I've seen that happen, but if you watch the people, they come to Christ many times, and they begin to change a little bit by a little bit, a little bit, their convictions begin to change. As a pastor, I should never fall into the role of teaching my convictions. Do you know why? Because my convictions are changing. The things that I'm convicted of today aren't things that I was convicted of when I first got saved. And I should never take my convictions and place them on you. You need to get your own convictions from the Holy Spirit. And then you, as you respond to those convictions, your life gets to be changed. When I begin placing my convictions on you, you know what that's called? Legalism. If you've been to a church, say, hey, you're not dressed right. No, you're not, you're, you, we can't have that in here. No, no, you're, no you're, you, don't, you don't meet our... No, no, that, that's me placing convictions on someone else. Let someone come to Christ, let the Holy Spirit convict them, let them respond, and they will have a changed life. It should be simple like that, isn't it? Don't force your convictions on someone else. But we can't get away from the fact that the scriptures, the study of God's word, should have a profound change in the way that we live. Now that's a problem for a lot of churches today. A lot of churches today don't want to teach God's word the way that it's written. And too many pastors are afraid that if they begin teaching the people of God how the word tells them to live, you know what they're afraid of? They'll leave the church. They'll leave. Well, I say let them go. Let's teach those that are here that, that want to hear God's word. Let's, let's teach, let, if they don't want to be here, they shouldn't be here. You, you know, you can't take the church and the world and try to combine the two. The world doesn't want the church and the church doesn't want the world. It doesn't fit together like that way. Be one or the other. There's no middle ground there, really. One commentator put it this way. He said, we can't escape it. The Bible is a book that tells us how to live. It is the height of hypocrisy to say that we believe its truth if we ignore how it tells us to live our lives. Do you understand that? He's saying, if you say, all right, God's word is truth, but you don't allow it to dictate how you live your life, you're, it's hypocrisy. It can't be, you, 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 can't dis, you can't just throw it out the window. You can't say, I believe it, and then not live it. it. It's hypocrisy is what he's saying. We don't always like it, but we need to hear how God expects us to live. You see, sometimes you'll go to the word of God, and you'll be cut to the heart. You'll be convicted. And you'll realize, Lord, I, I, I'm, I'm not living the way that you called me to. I'm not living that way. And you know what you do? You need to repent. Lord, forgive me. And you know what he does? He does. Sure, let's go. Let's keep going. I forgive you. Let's move on. Other times we go to the word of God and we go like, man, I've got that part down. I'm doing pretty good. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for teaching me that. I've grown in that area and I no longer struggle there anymore. That's a blessing as well. As we come into verse 2, Paul speaks directly to the older men in their churches or in their fellowships. He says this, these are the characteristics that older men should have. And when he says older men, he's talking about older Christian men. The older men 
that older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, and in patience. A healthy church body will contain a healthy mixture of both older saints, middle-aged saints, and younger or new believers. But understand something, it doesn't always mean just because someone's old, they're mature in their faith. And just because someone's young, it doesn't mean that they're immature in their faith. Somebody can be a Christian for a long time and failed to have matured, and someone can be a Christian a short time and mature rather quickly. As you age, the Christian should develop a greater and deeper love for God. Your life should be changing. Your love for God should be changing. It should produce in you. You should become a seasoned saint who has witnessed the hand of God at work in your life over the years. Year after year, decade after decade, you should be able to go back and testify, this is where God showed up and carried me through. This is where God did this. This is where God did that. And a church should value and honor those seasoned saints who have spent many years with fellowship in the Lord, who have spent many years studying God's word, who have spent year after year in service to the Lord. Oftentimes, there's a disconnect between the young and the old. What Paul's telling us is there shouldn't be a disconnect. The old should reach out to the young. The young should reach out to the old. Listen to this. Tell me if you know who this is. At the age of 83... After traveling some 250 miles, 250,000 miles, 200, quarter of a million miles on horseback, he preached more than 40,000 sermons and he wrote more than 200 books. At the age of 83, he regretted that he was unable to work or to write or to read for more than 15 hours a day because his eyes became too tired. After his 86th birthday, he admitted to an increasing tendency to lie in bed until 5.30 in the morning. It's John Wesley. John Wesley. John Wesley was a man used by God in a powerful way. You know what it required from him? Dedication. It required work. It required perseverance. when, When you say season saint, you might think, oh, John Wesley, and you think guys like that. But there's also guys within our fellowship that have been walking with the Lord for a long time. I would encourage, if you're a younger man, get to know them. Don't don't, don't let the generational gap divide you. That seasoned saint, that seasoned man, or or even seasoned woman in a while we're going to talk about, they have a lot of things that they can pour into your life. Let me just tell you, you can learn some things from their mistakes that you don't have to make the same mistakes they did. And most of the time, the guys are willing to sit down and tell you about it and share with you. You can learn and grow from them. Godly older saints should bring strength and stability to a church. They should be that backbone of the church. They should be cherished. Their wisdom and experience should be valued. Paul lists these type of characteristics that a seasoned saint should have. This is what, they're, this is what they're, he's looking for. And let me just say this. These characteristics that Paul's going to lay out for these older men that they should be, these seasoned saints that they should have, they don't come naturally with age. They don't just happen because you get older. They come as you, as you toil in God's word. They come as you are faithful through a trial, faithful through a tribulation. It doesn't just happen. It doesn't just come naturally. They're taught and they're learned and they're lived. So they hear it in God's word. They learn it through experience and they live it out successfully. The first one Paul lists there is he says they need to be sober. And in some translations, this is, this is translated temperate. The older seasoned saint is able to discern more clearly 
things that are of greater importance and value. In other words, he's done making mountains out of molehills. He knows what's important and what's not important. He doesn't waste time in things that aren't so important. He's learned to use his time, his money, his energy more carefully and selectively than, he was a young, than when he was younger and less mature. His priorities are in order. They're in the right order, and he is satisfied with fewer and simpler things in life. He understands the things of the world, they don't last. Everything He, he knows everything he owns is headed for the garbage dump one day. It's going to end up in the landfill. He's come to that realization. He doesn't need the fancy new car. He doesn't need the new stuff because he knows the new stuff will become old stuff, which will become burned up stuff or buried stuff, or we're going to just dump it away and get rid of it. But it also says there needs to be reverence pertaining to, appro- pertaining to being appropriate, befitting behavior, implying dignity and respect. In other words, he's honorable. He's worthy of respect, of good character. He carries himself in a way where you can respect him, not someone that you would look down to. But it also says temperate, that he is sensible, in control of himself. He speaks specifically of a man who has mastered his desires, mastered his passions, specifically his, his sensual appetites. He's in control of himself. He doesn't let himself just run off with emotion. He doesn't just do whatever he wants to do because it feels good. He realizes that doesn't lead to good places. I know the Hallmark Channel says follow your heart. Don't do it. It's not worth it. Trust me. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Don't follow your heart. Follow the word of God. Don't let your life be ruled by emotions. You'll be on a roller coaster that'll never stop. Allow, it to, allow the Lord to bring it in order. It also says there that he needs to be sound in the faith. Sound in the faith. This means that God has tested, God has been tested, and God has proven faithful in his life. He's witnessed it. He's got a, he's got a testimony of it. And they are certain that God can be trusted. How do they know that God can be trusted? Because he's been through the fire and God has been faithful. They know what they believe and they're not easily swayed. Their their foundation in scripture is true. You're not going to change their mind because they've already studied whatever it is you're looking at. A new believer gets an idea and I'm going to run off on this doctrine, that doctrine. You go to the old believer, go to the seasoned saint who's lived it and go, let me tell you. I've already done all that. I've read the books. Yeah, they had different authors. They were from 40 years ago, but it says the same thing, that it's already been hashed out by a lot of different people that are smarter than both of us. Let me tell you where you need to land on this kind of stuff. The seasoned saint can open up so much. They're sound in their faith. But it also says something really cool there. It says they're sound in love. Sound in love. This is agape love. It means they've learned and demonstrated this love towards God, towards other people, and even towards the unbelieving world. In other words, they've, they've learned agape love. It's, God has shown it to them. They've lived it. They've shared it. They've, you, you can see that in their life. It's something that's there. This is, now, now, this is not pastors. This is just seasoned men of God who have come to a maturity in faith through, the, through walking with God over many years. This is not anybody special. This is just what happens. It says they're also sound in patience. And sometimes it's translated as steadfastness or perseverance. It means this. These seasoned men are able to bear up under hardship. They've been through the fire. They've, under, they've been through hardship. They know how to accept disappointments. They know what failure looks like. They know how to accept failure and move on from it. They know how to be satisfied even though things didn't go according to their way or the way that they wanted it to go or the, according to their desires. These are men, sound and patience means they've learned to graciously live with difficulties in their life. Difficulties that might never go away, such as physical weakness. You know, as guys get older, we, get, we lose strength. 
We don't have the same strength we had when we're 20, 30, 40. You hit 50, 60, 70, your strength naturally goes away. They've learned to live with weakness, physical weakness. They've learned to live with things like loneliness or illness. They know what it's like to be misunderstood or underappreciated. Like the Apostle Paul, none of those things move a seasoned saint. The church needs more men like this, don't we? We need men that, are, that, that, that have lived up, that bear up these problems, that, that say, yes, I've been sick for a long time, but I know the Lord's faithful, and I'm not sure what he's doing. We need men that know what it's like to be lonely. Yes, I lost my wife. I, I know what it's like. I understand. I've been faithful to the Lord through this. Yes, I went through a hard circumstance, but I've walked faithfully through this. The Lord has met me every step of the way. We need those testimonies in the church. For the older men in the congregation, are you there? Are you there? Do you, do you have these characteristics unfolding in your life maybe some you're more better than others and some you're saying hey, i'm still working that's okay know what you should be working towards again they don't come naturally you don't just acquire them because you've reached a certain age in life they come through the hardships of life they come through the difficulties of life they come through the trials and in the testing it's during these times that you have the opportunity to watch the lord work in your life and you can prove faithful and say let me tell you how faithful god is talk to a man who's been walking with the Lord for a long time, who's endured a lot of difficulty, and ask him the question sometime, tell me how God has been faithful in your life, and then sit back and wait for the answer. Because if he's truly that seasoned saint, he's going to be able to list for you those ways that God has shown up in perhaps a, a divorce or an illness or whatever it might be where God was faithful through all of these things. As new believers, that's what they need to hear. They, yeah, these difficulties in life are coming, but there's a way to get through them. There's a way to navigate them in a way where God will be faithful to you, but we must be faithful to him. All right, ladies, you're next. Verse 3. The older women likewise, that they may be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Paul is speaking to Timothy here about older women and younger women. And he is certainly declaring or implying that there is a necessary relationship between the two. If you're a younger woman in our fellowship, you need to find an older woman that you can learn from. You need to find someone that you can connect with. Find someone who's raised their children. Find someone that you, need, that you can get information from. Find, you know what happens oftentimes? It's sometimes we feel disconnected because of a generational gap. In Christianity, we gotta get through that. Older women, reach out to the younger women. Younger women, reach out to the older women. Build that connection here. You can't just let it go by the wayside. You can't just go, well, they don't understand. Yes, they do understand. They've been through it. They've been, probably been through a lot more, and they can help you navigate your life in a way and save you a lot of heartache and hardship by simply doing these things. Now, I'm not going to go through each one of these characteristics like I did for the older men, and here is why. On the third Saturday of every month, my wife teaches a ladies' Bible study. It just so happens that she had planned this from the beginning of the year and she didn't know that we were going to be in Titus at this time. It just so happens, coincidentally, right, for the next two months, for September and October, this is the area of scripture she's going to be teaching on, the Titus 2 woman. 
So for the ladies, rather than have me sit here and try to explain this to you from a man's perspective, I would encourage you to come out and let my wife share it to you from a godly woman's perspective. Now, you may have never been to the ladies' Bible study before. You may have not liked it before or whatever, but I would encourage you, these are the two that you're going to want to be a part of. If you're older, go there hoping to meet a younger woman that you can encourage. If you're younger, go there with the intention of meeting an older woman that can help you navigate. You see, if you're a younger woman in a new relationship, there's a lot of things you need to learn. If you're an an older woman, can teach those things to you, both from her mistakes, her failures, as well as her successes. You need those things. As an older woman, you need to be able to pour into the younger women. Most of them want to, but they have to be given the opportunity to. So I'm not going to go into all of these things, but I strongly encourage all the ladies to attend, and here is why. If you're not aware of it, let me just open your eyes. You probably already know this, but the God-ordained role of a woman is under attack in our society. Do you understand that? What the world says a woman, a successful woman should be, and what the Bible says a successful woman should be, are two very different things. And a few of these verses here in Titus chapter 2 bear the brunt of that attack. Over the years, in the name of women's rights, the word of God is dishonored as being, it's been called sexist, it's been called chauvinistic, it's been called unfairly limiting, it's been called all kinds of things, outdated, whatever you want to say, it's been called these things. And the standards set forth in these passages are oftentimes just overlooked or excused as Paul's personal beliefs, but they're not. They're God's desires. Sometimes they're considered archaic or outdated, and many have said they're even irrelevant for today, but let me assure you, nothing could be farther from the truth. Tragically, many unthinking, and even I'll even go as far to say as poorly taught Christians, are seduced by the feminist movement or the feminist rhetoric into believing that the traditional roles of women and family in our society and in the church are outdated and even oppressive. Nothing's farther from the truth. I assure you that. As men and women in the church, we need to take our God-given roles seriously. Men, you need to lead your family in spirituality. Women, you have a role here too that that Paul's going to spell out to Titus rather clearly. For the sake of time, I'm not going into it, but I encourage you, don't just skip the next two Saturdays. Well, it's not the next two, but the third Saturday of September and the third Saturday of October. Be there. Hear what God says your roles are. You see, if, you really go, if you're really a woman who says, I want to I be a, a godly woman, then you're not going to miss those things. Now, I'm not saying you can't get it somewhere else or you can't learn it somewhere else, but regardless of your age, could you be able to, if, if, if someone were to ask you, hey, what's a godly woman look like? Could you tell them? Could, could your life demonstrate to them? Could you walk through the characteristics of your life and say, this is what a godly woman looks like. This is what a godly wife looks like. There's a reason that women have to be told to love their husbands and love their kids. There's a reason because it's difficult sometimes. Men are hard. We're hard to love once in a while. Not all the time. We're, we're not bad all the time. But we can be difficult. There's a reason that these instructions are given to both men and to women. And I would encourage the ladies, don't buy into what the world says. Because the world works on a sliding scale. What's right today is going to be wrong tomorrow. What's wrong today is going to be right tomorrow. It's forever changing truth. But God's word has never changed. And let me tell you something. It has proven faithful in the family for generations. The family that follows God's word is usually 
happy, successful, I like to use the word happy, joyful. doesn't mean everything's perfect, but they navigate life on such a way where their life on this earth is enjoyable and it matters and they accumulate much wealth in eternity. And I would encourage you ladies to be part of that. I know there's wisdom in hearing these roles taught and, I, and discussed specifically by a woman. I think it's good coming from another woman who's living these things out. And if you're serious about fulfilling your role, I encourage you to come to those ladies' studies. Now, as we come to verse 6, Paul turns his attention to young men and how they are to be living. Young Christian men, verse 6, likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, not a one-time thing, but a pattern. In doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned. That the one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Titus, Paul saying, Titus, I want the young men. I want you to exhort them, encourage them to be sober-minded. The implication here is self-control, good judgment. Encourage the young men to have self-control and good judgment. Now, why would he need to say that? Because naturally, young men don't have self-control and they don't have good judgment. You look back, well, I was a kid. When I, how many times did you start a conversation? When I was a kid, you know, yeah, you did stupid things. I get it. As a Christian, we should have good control and, and we, self-control and good judgment. And oh, by the way, it's not a one-time thing. He's looking for a pattern of, good, of self-control and good judgment. It's not, oh, I, did, I, I, I had self-control last week on Tuesday from 1 to 105. <laughs> No, it's just, no, no, no. It's, I, had last, I, I, ha, I have self-control. It's an ongoing pattern in my life. I'm making good judgment. It's an ongoing thing in my life. Self-control, if you're not aware of it, it's one of the fruits of the Spirit. You might go, well, Rob, I struggle with self-control. Then you struggle with the lack of the Holy Spirit in your life. Because when you ask the Lord, the Holy Spirit, to come upon you and reside with you and upon you, one of the side effects of that is self-control. If you take Advil, the headache goes away. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, there's self-control in your life. It's just, it's just, it's supposed to be that simple. It's not that complicated. I don't have to do it. It's not, it's not like I have to muster up the strength. I have to muster up the discipline. It'll happen naturally as you seek to please God. You, you will find a control. All of a sudden, the things that you once wanted to do, you go, I don't want to do that anymore. I just, I just, uh, no thanks. I don't want to go there. No, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, no, no, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to watch that anymore. This program doesn't, uh, no, I'm, I, I can't watch that anymore. I'm not doing that. And it begins to happen naturally. You don't have to make it happen. And Paul lists some other things here. This should be patterned in a young man's life. He says, in doctrine, showing integrity. Titus was a young man himself. He had to be an example in doctrinal stability and integrity. In other words, the things of God's word. The God, he, Titus, I'm leaving you in charge. I want you to appoint men that are older than you with these characteristics. And I want you to, you need to be strong doctrinally. You need to know what you believe and what you don't believe. If he wasn't comfortable and settled in his understanding of scriptures, then he certainly wasn't ready to be leading. He had to have this doctrinal integrity. He also says a pattern of good works and reverence, that pattern again, incorruptibility. In other words, you don't give in to what your friends want you to do. And I like this one, sound speech that cannot be condemned. A young Christian man should be developing a sound pattern of speech that is not condemned. As a young man grows up and as we mature, there is temptation to let, perhaps let his speech go unrestrained. He desires to fit in. 
wants to tell a dirty joke, wants to impress somebody, perhaps exercise his dominance over a group of people. But the young Christian man, he should have a pattern of sound speech. That means that his speech around the guys is the same as his speech around the girls. That means that his speech inside a church is the same as his speech outside of church. You say, well, Rob, I'm an old man and I have that problem. Then you see where you're at maturity-wise in Christianity. It's, it's not a knock. It's, a, it's an encouragement to keep moving, keep moving to the prize, keep maturing, keep growing. You know, it's, it's, it's the pattern of speech needs to be the same. He even says, Paul says to Titus, even your opponents should have nothing negative to say about you. That means, the, that means if you're in a soccer game or a football game or people that you may be a competitor at work, they have nothing to say about you, nothing negative to say because you haven't given them any ammunition. It was Jesus in John chapter 8 who said to the angry mob, which of you convicts me of sin? Which of you convicts me of sin? I, do, do you realize I couldn't say that to this group of people? I couldn't stand up there and say, which of you convicts me of sin? Because you'd see hands going up. Well, you said this and you did that. And, you know, you, I, I'm, not, I'm not Jesus. But Jesus could get up there and say, Who, which of you has seen me do anything, say anything, even knows of anything, thought of anything that I've done wrong? Who is it? And not a single person could raise their hand. As we mature in our faith, men, this is what it should become. People shouldn't have ammunition. Well, I know a little bit about that, Pastor. I'm not talking about before we came to Christ. I'm talking about after we've come to Christ. Well, you should have heard the way he was talking. I didn't even know he was a pastor. That, that shouldn't happen. You shouldn't make it to the role of pastor if you, haven't, if you haven't got a hold of your speech yet. Lastly, this morning, we'll look at Paul's instructions to Timothy regarding bond servants there in verse 9. He says, exhort bond servants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. And you might have a tendency to go, I'm not a bondservant. I don't have to worry about this one. I didn't like the guy thing. I didn't like the girl thing, but I'm off the hook on this one. Listen, I know that we live in a culture where slavery doesn't exist. There are no bondservants, and that is a good thing. However, in the Roman Empire... Their labor depended on bond slaves, bond servants. They were an essential part of their society as well as their economy. Most, if not all, slaves were abused and they were brutalized for even minor infractions or for simply displeasing because your master was unhappy with you. They could be beaten or even killed. And let me just go on record as saying just because the Bible mentions bond servants, Christianity does not promote slavery. But since it was occurring in the scriptures, since it was occurring in the day at that time, the scriptures address it. He's not saying, yes, it's okay, you can have slaves. He's not saying that. But he's saying, if you are in this role, this is what you need to know. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, I do not think for a moment Paul believed that a practice of slavery ought to exist. He believed to the fullest extent that the great principles of Christianity would overthrow slavery anywhere. And the sooner they did so, the better pleased would he be. But for the time being, as it was the custom to have slaves, they must adorn the doctrine of God, their Savior, in the position in which they were. In, all, in our culture, we don't have slaves, and it's a good thing. But we can't just disregard this picture, this image that he's giving us. You see, where this fits in our life, it's more like the employee-employer relationship. You see, you go to work for somebody, they pay you a wage, and you do a job. 
Essentially, you are doing them. You belong to them for those eight hours or six hours or whatever hours you work. You're working for someone unless you're fortunate enough to work for yourself. But then you're in bondage to your business oftentimes. <laughs> it's not, it's not always, you don't get more time off. You get less time off when you work for yourself. But the idea is that as an employee, I have a responsibility to my employer. And you would be the same way. As employees, it tells us here, there's a couple of mistakes that slaves were making. There's a couple of mistakes. They're the same mistakes that we make as employees. It says it right here. Disobedience is the first one. Talking back or answering back is the second one. Stealing or pilfering is the third one. Just like the slaves would do these things, oftentimes as an employee, we can find ourselves doing the same thing. As employees, do you realize there's a scriptural mandate for you to seek to please your employer? That means your boss should be happy with you. You should seek to please them. You should do your job in a way that pleases your boss. And that might mean you have to do it her way or his way. And you go, no, Rob, my way is better. I understand you think that, but they're signing your check. No, Rob, their way is going to take six hours. My way is going to take two. Great. If you get paid by the hour, you make more. Do it their way. Their boss, their company, they're, they're the ones that want it done a certain way. They may have experience that you're not aware of. They may have already been trying to teach you something. Do it the way that they want to. You see, and one other thing, this type of attitude when it comes to work, it shouldn't just be on the outside. You know, sometimes we go, yeah, I'll do, I'll do what the boss wants. But on the inside, you're like, I don't like that guy. I don't like her and blah, 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 blah. The minute you get around your coworkers, you start da, 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 da. Can you believe he's making me do I could do it in two hours. It's taking me six hours. That's what happened. You guys don't ever do that, do you? All right. We shouldn't do that as Christians. As Christians, not only should we seek to please our boss, but ultimately the reason we do that is because we're seeking to please Jesus. It's Christ we want to please. He is our boss. He went to the cross for us. It's him that I want to please. And I can do that by being a good employee because I am representing him to everybody at the company that I work. Disobedience, what we're looking at here, is not the mark of a faithful Christian employee. Disobedience is the mark of a, of a rebellious employee, an employee who thinks he knows better, an employee who's going to be unemployed real soon if he or she keeps it up. Secondly, it says there, it indicates there, we're not to answer back. No back-talking, no sarcasm. Simply do the job you're getting paid for in obedience. A day's work for a day's wage. Doesn't mean, well, you don't get to be sarcastic with your boss. You don't get to laugh at him. You don't get to make fun of her. You don't get to do that. Those are not Christian ways of response. Thirdly, we're to avoid pilfering, it says there. And I know we don't use the word pilfering. It means stealing. Taking things that don't belong to you. We're to be honest and trustworthy. Every year, lots of things go missing in the companies that we work for. Sometimes it's paper clips, sometimes it's computers, sometimes it's overtime hours that we said we were there a little longer than we were. Whatever it might be, I, maybe, maybe, it's your, maybe sometimes it's stealing something because the boss isn't there today. Well, he or she took the day off, so what are you doing? Nothing. Boss isn't here. I'm relaxing. No, that's, you're stealing. They're paying you to do a job. Do your job for that day. You go, Rob, I don't like this Christian stuff. You don't understand. My boss owes this to me. I have to put up with them all week. I've earned this. Those are not good reasons. You can't just justify away what God's word is telling us. All right. Why? Just tell me why. Why, Paul, do we need to be an employee who seeks to please our boss? Why can't we talk back, even just a little bit? Why do we need to be so honest? A company can afford it. 
Paul tells you right there. He says, so that you may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. When you act this way, when you do these things, you're bringing dishonor to the word of God and you are invalidating your testimony of Jesus Christ. How do you steal from a company, steal from a boss, and then tell them about Jesus? And then tell them, invite them to your church. When, well, when, when the boss is away, I, just, I, don't, I don't have to do any work. I just sit around and do nothing. But come to my church. Why would I want to be like you? You see, as a Christian, our bosses, our unbelieving bosses should come to us and say, are there any more Christians who need jobs? Because you guys are the best workers I have. You guys work faithful. I know that you do it when I'm not here. You're not, you're not gossiping. You're not talking about each other. Even when, even when I make mistakes, you don't, you don't go, I'll tell you how. You know, I, mean, you, you, I just need more of you guys. You see, if we don't behave this way before our boss in order to please our Heavenly Father, then essentially what we're doing is we're, we're losing our testimony before our workplace. How do we go in and tell our coworkers, hey, I went to church this week. Let me, let me, come to my church. I don't want any part of your church. You don't even work here. I have to do half your work because you're too lazy to do it. I don't, want, I don't want to go to your church. We should be the best employees there are. We don't want to be people who are dishonoring God's word. We don't want to be ruining our witness because we're a subpar employee or a stealing employee who now has lost his testimony to his coworkers. You know, when you study an area of scripture like this, you go, Rob, well, I've been that. What do I do? I would encourage you to go to your boss. If you've been that back talker, if you've done that thing, if you've been that lazy employee, I would encourage you to go to your boss and say, you know what? I was in church this weekend and I realized I haven't been the kind of employee that God wants me to be. Forgive me. Change that. You know, he's, he's going to laugh at you. He'll say, yeah, right. Yeah, sure, whatever. Just go do your job. But then change. Over the next couple of weeks, let him see the change in you or let her see the change in you. As you begin to work more diligently, as you begin to, you know, your, your integrity level comes up, as you begin to be, be more successful, watch what they do. Watch, how they, watch the difference that they are. Don't be afraid to say I've made a mistake in life. Hey, I've been wrong. I have no problem saying I'm wrong. I'm wrong a lot. And it's okay to say, I've made a mistake, I've messed up, I've misunderstood this, please forgive me. Those words are good. If you can say that to your boss, you will bring them into a whole new profound level of respect for you. Even if they didn't like you, they're going to go, okay, I forgive you. They're not going to say, they might fire you if you've done something wrong. But even if they didn't like you, you're going to bring them into a relationship that they weren't expecting. So what type of employee are we? You see, there's another side to this, bosses. How are you treating your employees? See, some of us are employers. And employees, this is, is, is a, as an employer, you hear this go, yeah, I wish people would listen. But what about as an employer where you have employees? How are you treating your employees? Is it, is it, is it in a godly way? Is it in a way where you're sharing Christ with them? Or is it in a way, or do they see you stealing from the customer? Or do they see you doing something you're not supposed to? Or they see you being lazy in your own company. How are, how, are, how are you sharing Christ with them? How, what, are, what witness or testimony are they seeing in your life? You see how this is so important in our testimony? Because if my life is different at work than it is at home and different at church, I'm not the same person. It should be, I should be the same person all across the board. You know, I learned as a, most of you guys know I was a police officer, and I learned very early on as a police officer that even in the police world, people behave differently depending on who's around. If the chief of police was riding with you, boy, you better be on your mind your P's and Q's. If he wasn't, eh, there's plenty of time to goof off if you wanted to. And I learned really early on through faith and through passages like this, I need to be the same person, do the same things, make the same decisions no matter who's riding with me. And if I do that, 
I don't have anything to worry about. It doesn't matter if the boss shows up unexpectedly. I'm doing what I would be doing anyways. And on top of that, I'm keeping my testimony for the Lord intact. So when I share the gospel, people go, yeah, that's who I want to be like. That's who I, who I want to be. In these first 10 verses of chapter 2, Paul's instructed the older men. He's instructed the younger men. He's talked to the older women and the younger women. He's also instructed bond servants or that employee-employer relationship. As we pick up next week, Paul will begin to speak about the doctrinal truth of grace. He'll begin to continue with his instruction to us as the church. He's going to focus on grace. You know why we need grace? Because we've just got a whole lot of stuff that we're probably doing wrong. As you read through that, you go, well, I missed that one. I missed that one. I missed that one. Grace is coming next. Thank you, Paul. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, Lord, your word is convicting. It's powerful. It's sharp. It just, uh, it's, it just cuts to our hearts sometimes. Lord, I just pray that as we study and we prepare, as you, as you teach us, Lord, if, if we've been that employee that has been a poor representation of you, may today be the day that all changes. If we need to even humble ourselves before our earthly boss, may we do so. And Lord, if we've been that husband or that older Christian that hasn't matured the way that we, ha- we should be, the way we see, maybe we've been walking with the Lord for a long time. Lord, as long as we're here, there's breath in our lungs, may we change. May we mature. May you walk with us through these things. And for the ladies, Lord, as they prepare to study these couple of verses together in the coming weeks, may you just bless that time. For the Lord, for the world wants to steal away what it means to be a godly woman. They want to change it and manipulate it. They want to sell the lie of you'll be happy some other way. But Lord, you're our creator. And you know where we find true joy. You know where we find contentment and peace. It's in doing what you called us to do, in being who you called us to be. Lord, may we conform into your image through the renewing of our mind. May you teach us and train us. Lord, thanks for the conviction this morning. May we respond to it. May we not be people who are saying we believe the truths of God's word, but living something completely different. Instead, may the truths that we learn be lived out and displayed in our life for all to see. In Jesus' name, amen.